0: Hey everyone, Dark Spider David here, bringing you guys another episode of the Dark Spider cast. I believe this is episode 3. And uh, welcome, welcome one and all. Uh, it looks like we're set to go, really. There's not many pleasantries that I can really go through right now except to say that... Man, was a tough as far as the Hollywood industry? Because we lost really two really great people and their respective work as far as you know you know what they worked on what they did what they brought to the table it was, it, it, it was tough to the point where it really became it, to the point where it affected me so much that last night I legitimately had a dream I had a dream that I went on Twitter and I found out that Morgan Freeman had passed I don't know why I legitimately I wasn't even thinking about Morgan Freeman. I wasn't thinking about anything right in the moment as far as these celebrity passings that we've had in the past week or so. But enough was there to, like, at least subconsciously, to at least kind of invoke that image. And now I'm scared that I might have just seen a premonition. So fingers crossed that that didn't transpire. And the reason for why that happened is because I do want to pay tribute to two individuals here that we sadly lost this past week Michael K. Williams. And Norm McDonald, uh, which really hurt. Like as soon as I saw those things kind of unfold, I think I woke up to the news of Michael K. Williams' passing on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, you know, whatever wherever you get the news, I was there to kind of witness that firsthand. And Norm MacDonald is actually the one that I saw unfold in real time. I was actually on Twitter when all of a sudden I refreshed the trending page and I saw right there a hashtag RIP Norm, Norm Macdonald. Uh Norm McDonald was just a trending topic overall. And man, I was, I was seeing this and I'm like, this cannot be true. And it was, and it was both very untimely passings. Michael K. Williams, unfortunately was due to what is perceived to be. It's funny how they always do that where they're like, Oh, we suspect suicidal. We suspect an overdose, but they have to by legal reasons say that, but they can't actually confirm it. Even if they found them in, like, the most obvious states, you know what I mean? Like, if they found the, the needle in the arm or uh, the rope around the neck, etc., you know, like, they have to technically, you know, leg- legally wise, say that they suspected until the coroner finally says, yes, this is what happened. And basically they found drug paraphernalia inside of his apartment for Michael K. Williams. And he was found uh, dead in his apartment at the age of 54, I believe. And yeah, this one hurt because he was one of my favorite character actors. Uh, he was that actor that no matter what you want, he was in that category that is a very broad category like there's a lot of people that fill this uh this category and fill fill this uh reputation and there's still a lot of them still living today thank god but he was one of those character actors where whenever he appeared in something as much as a piece of shit that movie may be he would show up and liven up the entire material i remember sitting in the theater i saw this movie in theater god help me i saw this movie in theaters Assassin's Creed, the video game adaption starring Michael Fassbender. It's a ginormous turd of a movie, but he was in that. Why he was in that? I don't know. I don't know if he was doing somebody a favor or he genuinely liked the Assassin's Creed movies and he thought it was going to be something different. Because that's another funny thing too is that his role in the movie is in a section of the movie where I can kind of understand what he probably thought it was going to go in a different direction as far as the material that he was given but then the way the movie ended up being cut it was like oh yeah that was probably not what he probably might have envisioned especially if he was in fact a fan of the movie of the video games so he appears to help Michael Fassbender's character out while he's in the real world and yeah as much as I was having a very strong disdain for this movie he shows up And I'm over here just, you know, picking myself up in my seat going, oh, shit, he's in this. He would always bring that reaction out of me to be like, oh, he's in this. And uh, I know that a lot of people most notably know him as uh, Omar Little from The Wire. Now, I must confess, I've confessed this in real time to people in real life and, you know, that I know uh, in person. And then folks that I've talked to through the methods of Twitch and YouTube and have confessed, and I will now confess once more here in podcast form, that I have not watched The Wire. I've tried multiple times to garner a Black Friday deal on that Blu-ray box set. And every time, either there's a financial struggle or it's just something comes up that requires more financial attention, and I end up passing up on it. My apologies. But it is on my list of shows to watch. The Wire, I understand that. I mean, not just because of him, but also one of my other favorite actors, Idris Elba's in there, handful of other people that I will recognize. I was like, yes, I, this definitely looks like my type of show. I just need to make time for it. And so I know that he had a very profound effect on that show from what other people have said, what other people have talked about, his co-stars, and just uh, overall his accolades that he has garnered uh, with that show, as well as the other show that he was on, which I did see him on for a brief period of time before I somehow ended up falling off the show. I don't know if something else came up, or I I don't know, I really hope that I didn't lose interest or anything like that, but Boardwalk Empire, Uh, he played a character named Chalky. And I do remember him that I saw the first two seasons, I believe, before I fell off for some reason. Again, it wasn't because I was disliking the show, but something, I don't know, kind of pulled me away. I don't know if it was time or what was going on. I was still going, I think I was at the time still going to uh, community college. So that was still like a regularly scheduled thing from day to day. And I would end up getting a little too tired to watch the show. And I would focus on either creating content for YouTube or gaming or something. I don't know. But. I remember during the time that I was watching that show that I was, you know, thinking about his character, and he did bring forward a good performance. Almost no matter what he was in, he would nail it. Like, he hardly ever had a bad performance in something, but he always brought his unique kind of look and, and feel to that kind of character, and if he needed to get mad, or if he needed to get scared, or if he needed to be heartfelt, he was still able to kind of capture all those emotions, so... Rest in peace, uh, Michael K. Williams. I know that, and here's the thing, another reason for why I have, I I mean, I don't know if there's an interview out there where he confirms this or he has said this publicly, but the reason why he was probably in Assassin's Creed, the, the movie, because he might be a fan of the games is because that's not his only... Um, dip into the video game world. He played a character named Irish in Battlefield 4, I believe. I think it was Battlefield 4. And he was actually set, and I think he already recorded dialogue, to reprise that role of Irish in the Battlefield universe for the now newly delayed Battlefield 2042. So we're in essence going to get a posthumous sort of performance from him to a degree because that is meant to be a multiplayer only game, not a campaign. But he is going to be appearing as Irish in Battlefield 2042, so that is undoubtedly going to be a better, a bittersweet moment. And also on my list is a show called Lovecraft County, which is now a mini series, not a show because unfortunately there are no plans to move forward with a second season. And I do know that he's on that, and he's also up for an Emmy for his role in that. And since I am planning on watching that show, it's also going to be a bittersweet moment for me to watch his last performance in that. So, rest in peace to Michael K. Williams. And then we lost one of my favorite comedians, Norm Macdonald. I mean, what more can I say that hasn't already been said about Norm Macdonald? That he was one of the last few comedians that was not scared to not give a fuck. To really, to to really, you know, tackle PC culture in a in a way that was very unique to him, while at the same time never being—it's funny—he would say jokes that will get a rise out of people. I remember watching clips of him on Weekend Update for SNL, and he will get booed by some of the people in the audience. Uh, not everybody, but like a, you would hear the occasional boo. But what made him unique, what made him different, especially from a lot of comedians today, is that he would heckle back, but he would be very swift and finessing with it. Because he wouldn't come off as abrasive, as douchey, as a jerk about it. He wouldn't. He would utilize, he would still use the weapon and the armor of comedy to fight back to hecklers and to booers. Like, he he wouldn't, you know, just attack and immediately, you know, he could easily just say, fuck you. And he didn't resort to just that. I mean, maybe he might throw in the occasional F-bomb, but he would come up with something sardonic to essentially clap back, as the kids say these days. And that was ultimately his thing. And I remember a quote that I don't remember him saying. I might have, you know, this might have been before my time, who knows, but it was then immortalized in a way, thanks to Twitter, when, you know, his passing broke, and people were sharing his, uh, their tributes and their thoughts, and I remember somebody on Twitter saying that one of his uh, quotes that actually did become famous over time, and it's probably going to now, is that, uh, about comedy today, and how a lot of comedians these days go for the clap, rather than for the, the laugh, you know, for, for them to clap, for the audience to clap in the audience, rather to laugh. And that is true, because I, I do remember seeing some recent Netflix specials where sometimes comedians don't even tell jokes. They actually say things that get people to clap to be, like, in accordance you know, to, to, for the uh, for the comedian or comedian, you know, female or male, whatever, whatever the case is, um, to have the audience be on their side so that if they do say something off kilter, they don't lose them. They will lose them and be like, hey, remember when I said that I was on your side? Let's get that established. It's like, D- stop worrying about agendas. Just tell the jokes, you know, just be funny. Focus on the joke. And that's what Norm MacDonald was always focused on. It was always about uh, the comedy, you know, making sure that that was still integral and it wasn't compromised. Um, and plus I just never got tired of him ribbing into people and, you know, and, you know, making sure that we all just loosened up. And of course, you know, the, the, the best uh, appearances that he had on live television was whenever he collaborated with what's arguably my favorite talk show host, Conan O'Brien. And he was always, you know, he was a regular on that show, you know, very frequent, um, and needless to say, that him and Conan were best friends, great friends. And of course, with the time of his passing, Conan w- took to Twitter almost immediately to say that he was heartbroken. Um, because this was rather unprecedented. He passed at the age of 61. He, and it was after a 10-year, very private battle with cancer. No, it, he, he pretty much pulled a Chadwick Boseman. He didn't tell anybody. He kept it under wraps and nobody really knew. And that's crazy. I uh, That's crazy, but at the same time... You, you you definitely understand it because it depends on the person. You know? so it, it, nobody's wrong about this. Nobody's wrong to keep it private or make it public. It's just a matter of perspective on that person. If they want to make it a public thing so that they can then explain why maybe they are absent from things or whatever. Or if they want to keep it private because they don't want to be treated differently. Any differently out in public. And uh, I think that is a very Norm Macdonald thing for him to do is to keep it private so that... People can take his humor the way that it's always been, uncompromised, uncensored, unrelenting. You know, because then if he would have come forward immediately upon his diagnosis to say, oh yeah, I got cancer, and then he tells his jokes, people will be like, well, we'll give PV laughs because they're like, oh, you know, that was offensive, but he's suffering from cancer, let him be, you know, he didn't want that handicap. At least that's what I'm assuming, considering the the type of comedian that he is. Uh, he didn't want that extra layer of of um, again, handicap. He just wanted it to still be, it to keep that integrity of of his comedy alive. And yeah, you know, it was it, it, that style of comedy and his appearances on SNL from the Weekend Update bits when he was a actual cast member to when he was a reoccurring guest. Uh, after being let go because those boos apparently started to scare the people behind SNL. And so he was let go, but then strangely got kept invited back as a guest or as a host guest. Um, and in doing so, he would give my one of my favorite impressions that I never got tired of seeing is his impression of Burt Reynolds uh, on the Jeopardy sp- uh, spoof by Will Ferrell. And, yeah, his appearances on that, it was always gold. Regardless of what the other two opponents on his sides were going to be, whenever he appeared as Burt Reynolds, I, I remember not, I don't know if it was either this year or probably last year, where I went on a binge of, like, just a shit ton of skits, vintage skits of SNL, and then I came across the Burt Reynolds bits that he did on that Jeopardy spoof. And I just kept watching back to back to back to the point where I think I got to the 40-year anniversary SNL special. And they did do a Jeopardy spoof, bringing back Will Ferrell, a bunch of regulars, a bunch of uh, people that were reprising those spoof characters. And needless to say, uh, Norm Macdonald was there uh, playing Burt Reynolds. And yeah, he never ceased to get a laugh out of me. And his humor is the humor that's... Is very much dwindling and on the verge of being gone, which is uh, which is tragedy, which is very tragic because now we can't say the smallest things without Twitter being up in an uproar or sponsors or you know advertisers getting scared because they don't want the public outcry because it's all the matter of public opinion as opposed to you know actually looking after things that need looking after and making sure that we're getting angry about the right things, instead of the wrong things, and Norm Macdonald was a comedian that was all focused on the comedy, and never bothered to think what was politically correct or or not, and he was able to weaponize that in a way that no other comedian uh, was able to do at the time, so rest in peace, Norm Macdonald, This, uh, this one did in fact hurt, because not just of the you know person that he was the comedian that he was like i said he was still um all about the comedy he never came out it came off as a as a dick or anything like that uh in fact uh when he passed a lot of people came forward with stories about how even if he had that kind of sardonic uh dry wit of humor he would still have his moments where like he would just talk to random people like people that weren't even famous just to be like hey how's it going and just chill with them, whether it be backstage or at a, at a club, at a venue, whatever, you just, you know, a lot of people came forward telling their stories saying that, yeah, Norm McDonald, just talk to me, uh, like random shit, not random, like, just, you know, off kilter Christopher Walken style random shit, but just like, you know, ask them about their life, ask them about what they're doing on their day, and then came up with this joke or whatever, like, I remember, I remember there was a Conan appearance, that had a Mackenzie Davis and I don't know what Mackenzie Davis said, but his response was like, Hey, have you ever thrown a hooker off of a, of a, the roof of a bridge? And and she's like, what's the punchline? And Norm just waves his hand. Like, I I don't know. (laughs) There was no, there there was no context to to that, was just his delivery. It's like, what the fuck? So yeah, like moments like that are probably going to be strongly missed because now I feel like with the moving times, we're just not going to get that again. So rest in peace to both Michael K. Williams and Norm Macdonald. This was a tough week to lose them both almost within the same amount of time. And uh, I-, I was personally affected by it. So uh, hopefully my premonition about Morgan Freeman does not come to pass and make it any worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So time for what well, I'm probably going to make a brief uh, recap slash review of the latest episode of What If. I feel like this is probably going to be a weekly thing for a lot of the Marvel shows. Uh, there may be a slight gap in October, but, you know, that's quickly going to get filled by Eternals talk, by Hawkeye, etc, etc, etc. So, we had episode six of What If, after bouncing back from the zombies episode, which I think had mixed results for various different people. I personally know somebody who absolutely hated it, and I liked it, but I definitely understood what the problems were uh, that were holding it back, Uh, especially for uh, an episode that is actually rooted on a previous what-if comic line of Marvel Zombies. This time, it's a very interesting episode that had a very uh, fascinating hook that then sprawled into a lot of little nuances and details that were very clever, but not without still its problems that have either been reoccurring for the show uh, or for this specific episode. Although I feel like it leans more towards the former. So episode 6 of What If. Was what if. Killmonger saved Tony Stark. Or rescued Tony Stark. So that's ultimately. What is the big hook about episode 6. That is really cool. Is that we are going back to the beginning. Quite literally of the MCU. To that fateful Afghanistan tour that Tony Stark was riding shotgun in that then kickstarted this entire journey, not just for Tony Stark himself to his eventual uh, sacrifice in Endgame, but the MCU overall, you know, snapping it into existence, if you will. Um, And and basically, it takes that initial inciting incident and flips it on its head by having Killmonger out of all people, show up and rescue Tony Stark when he was put in danger. And that is immediately the very, you know, very profound thing that gets you thinking as a Marvel fan because not only are we going back to those good old days of 2008 when that Iron Man movie came out and we had that whole ordeal happen, but it's funny how you look at the title, what if Killmonger rescued Tony Stark... And it's almost like there's a hidden message in there. What if Iron Man never happened? Because that's essentially what this episode kind of answers. Is what if Iron Man never happened? And the opening of the episode pretty much answers that question. It's like, hey, without Iron Man, Nick Fury doesn't really have the incentive to go out and look for these uh, superhero beings. And kick off, or at least dust off, the Avengers initiative that he had started in the 90s after his interaction with Captain Marvel. So if the Avengers never happened... And the stuff with the MCA, you know, the stuff with Thanos haven't come to pass just yet, or at least it didn't invoke, uh, like Vision would put it, in Civil War, challenge and conflict, and bring, uh, you know, resurge the existence of the stones, etc. Then okay, that's cool. But again, going to what this inciting incident creates, it creates like these sprawling little nuances and subtle details within the episode that are actually very interesting to watch. For one, it's actually Tony himself. Because if he doesn't go through his redemptive arc of getting out of that cave and becoming a new person, being practically born again, then he is going to stay that egotistical drinking jerk that we started off with at the beginning of Iron Man. Before everything went down, if he, if he doesn't go through that redemption arc, his initial, uh, you know, answer to every question is going to be with force, build bigger, batter, more weaponized, more weapons, you know, more guns overall. And that's basically the gist of it. Especially with somebody as dangerous as Lethal's Killmonger by his side. So this episode's greatest strengths were in those subtle nuances of making it, you know, being very consistent with everything that it set up or honestly not set up. Which in this case is not setting up what it would have been like if Tony Stark never built a suit and never went through that arc and stayed the same. And how reckless he really would have become regardless of how well-intentioned, his friends and and his significant others like Pepper Potts, which at this time they really weren't romantically involved just yet, but Pepper Potts, uh, Rhodey, uh, Happy, all of them trying to tell him like, hey, cut this shit out and look out for that guy, Killmonger, and him simply not listening because he had not gone through that arc. Harkening back to that scene in Iron Man after he was done spending the night with the reporter, he's just like building and tossing shit and not really paying too much attention to what Pepper has to say before going off on his trip uh, while he was trying to work on that uh, that car. Like, imagine that Iron Man, but then he stays like that. And that's ultimately going to be his downfall, especially when he gets in cahoots with someone like Killmonger, which is the other biggest strength about this sixth episode, is that it then showcased how awesome and clever of a villain Killmonger is in the MCU, and it's cool to see that What If was able to give him some new life and give him some additional screen time. Albeit, sure, it's still in animated form, but Michael B. Jordan comes back to voice the character. Uh, obviously, RDJ didn't come back for Iron Man, but Michael B. Uh, Michael B. Jordan did, and he still nails it. He's still great in the performance. And at the same time, again, I love the writing behind the character. You can tell that whoever wrote this episode was really itching to write some more material for Killmonger to show how he is playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. Literally playing both black and white. And it's, it's awesome to see how he kind of interloops and interweaves everything, while at the same time, like I said, still reminding us that we're still in 2008. So there's little details in the background that a lot of people were like, wait, why is this character younger? Why is this character doing the thing that uh, he or she is doing? And then you have to realize that this is taking place a whole 10 years before the event, or at least 8 years before the events of Civil War. Because technically, Black Panther, even though it came out in 2018, it technically takes place in 2016. takes place about a week or two after Civil War. So, it's been... It's eight years prior to what happens in Black Panther. So, it makes sense for certain characters to be younger, certain characters to be able to do the things that they they can be, uh, whether it be on a physical level, like the action sequences that we get towards the end of this episode, or on a much more emotional level. While at the same time, still being able to utilize the uh the lore and what made things fascinating in Wakanda and in the movie of Black Panther, whether it be how they treat death, how they treat um, their culture, etc., you still see a good chunk of that here in this episode that is, you know, very welcome to see. And I feel like at times animation is able to make that kind of pop with the color palette and being able to, you know, you know, kind of bask in the in the saturation of things. So overall, really good episode, but of course not without its problems. Uh, For one, it's the general one that I think it's here to stay. I I feel like at this point we need to stop complaining about it, which is the rushness, which is the fact that almost every one of these what-if episodes needs like an additional 10, maybe even 15 minutes, like make each episode about 45 minutes long, and maybe some some of the pacing issues could be fixed in that manner. But because of the budget constraints probably with the animation, things like that, Every episode has been no longer than I want to say 35 minutes. I think the longest episode is 35 through 60 minutes, which is the Doctor Strange episode. Even even with that, it still feels rushed from time to time. And this episode is, of course, no exception to that. You know, there's moments where you can see the actors, the voice actors, uh, both you know, the ones returning from the MCU and the ones that are specific to what if being in the recording booth trying to give good quality and but because of the constraints and having the episode be under 30 minutes they have to edit and mix the dialogue to where one character just stopped saying a sentence and then another one immediately starts talking and you're like why people don't talk, don't talk like this and when i say that i don't even just mean in real life there's animated movies there's a bunch of animated movies out there that have natural dialogue because they make sure not to you know to rationalize their budget and be like hey this is how people talk. This is how people flow with their conversation. Make sure you don't tarnish that just for the sake of, like, oh, we got to save money. Come on, Marvel. You're, you're Marvel. All that money you guys earned from Endgame, you know, don't be stingy. This could just be an experiment that you guys are testing out with what if, but if it proves fruitful, don't be stingy on season two, please, because I don't want to have these, like, rush moments. Along with that, the episode also has, for the first time in a while now, this episode actually has a little bit of an issue reminiscent of that from the first episode which is what if Captain Carter was the first Avenger the Captain Carter episode which is that despite changing some things here and there and swapping things here and there and again giving some really interesting twists to some nuances and details in the foreground and the background there what happened let's just say that what happens with Killmonger towards the end of the episode not at all that different than what happens with Killmonger in the actual Black Panther movie, as far as his motive, as far as his his path, his journey, it's very, very similar. Uh, with that said, I also do not want to move on from my talk with uh, this episode without giving some accolades to Andy Circus. Uh, because if it was another returning character from the MCU or actor from the MCU that was going to show up here in animated form, that was going to excel as far as performance-wise, it was going to be Andy Serkis because this is a guy who who you know got on the map by giving a performance to a virtual character, column. You know, so this was going to be a walk in the park for him, and obviously he nails it as Claw once again. And a message to not only What If, but this can kind of extend to almost any form of visual medium, whether it be movies or TV. Stop shooting or, in this case, animating and creating shots just for the trailers. Because there's some shots at the beginning of this episode that I know for a fact were used in the trailers to promote what If, Specifically, the most recent mid-season trailer that had a certain shot recreated from Endgame that a lot of people, including myself, were looking at and going... Oh my God! How are they gonna change this and and turn it around to fit into the what if universe? And it ended up just being a recreation of the scene from Endgame without really fitting into the context of the story for this episode. You know, it's it's. I mean, some people will make arguments, but at the same time, I'm like, why was this here? It, it just took up time. It just it took away for the budget possibly. Don't create and it was. It, the the feeling that I got was that it was just a trailer moment. And so if we're going to have those shots, just keep them in the trailers. Don't put them in the episode at least to kind of throw things out. It, it was just something that, could, that kind of stood out to me. And I'm really hoping that you know we see that less and less, not only with What If, but future Disney Plus shows and movies overall. Time for the backlog and what I've been playing, which I gotta be honest, a little minuscule this week because I've just been really, really, really busy editing content for the YouTube channel, or a YouTube channel, I should say, Uh, as well, because I'm trying to implement a new strategy, I've garnered some inspiration to do something as far as how to better create content for the algorithm, make discoverable, discoverable content, and kind of harken back to my roots and to look back as to what exactly is the most proficient and the most uh, searched for on this current YouTube channel that I have and maybe, maybe just create a different YouTube channel and see how recreating some of those videos and kind of looking back at those videos all these years later with a new perspective does and as far as proficiency but overall I'm also having actually legitimately a bit of fun I mean it's tasking it's exhausting but I'm actually legitimately enjoying shooting these videos c- coming up with a schedule uh, of a of a routine a cycle if you will of shooting this content editing it pouring it out there so I can have weeks upon weeks of content to simply just be able to upload on a twice a week basis and I don't know, I, I'm enjoying that. So that, along with also waiting uh, for a specific game that I'll get into in a bit right now with a you know slight little issue that I've been having with a particular retailer, um, I actually have not been really playing all that much. On top of that, without mentioning too much because I kind of want to keep this on down low, I actually have been, in a matter of speaking, commissioned to edit a video Uh, or at least a couple of videos for another person for someone other than myself. So I've literally been going back and forth between shooting, editing and polishing my own content, which is quite literally right now uh, we're up, up to like about five or six videos. And uh, along with that, editing down one really large video that is actually not of my own making, it's for somebody else. So I'm working, you know, I'm doing editing work for somebody else, and I'm doing edited work for myself. And to be honest, sandwiched in there, I haven't really been able to play all that much outside of what either I was able to play this past weekend, or what I've been able to play on stream, as well as stuff that could also be made. Excuse me, made for uh, a different video, hopefully in the nearby future here. So, it's honestly just come down to three main games. On the streams, I finally played the campaign for Jake Mueller in Resident Evil 6. So, we did continue in Resident Evil 6. We played as Ada Wong initially. And, like I mentioned in last week's episode, Ada Wong really brings home the point that RE6 is not a Resident Evil game. It's more of a Matrix game than it is a Resident Evil game, through and through, just completely, overall. Like, there, there's no question, <laughs> there's no question about it. So, with that said, Jake Mueller, once again, kind of brings that home a little bit more, except a little less Matrix, a little bit more Luke Basson. I don't know what it is, but I was thinking quite Often about Leon the Professional as I played in terms of style and and, uh, inspiration and muse, you know, there's always, there, you know, there's that guy that wants, has to protect this girl, and, you know, they're going through the uh, action bits of, like, you know, the slow-mo shots of dodging something, while at the same time incorporating the usual trappings you find in Resident Evil, the chainsaw guy, the zombies, the creatures, uh, one very big Mr. X-looking motherfucker that's chasing you all over the place, that's all thrown in there, but, of course, just like with Ada Wong's campaign and the game overall that at this point I'm just downright willing to accept, is that it's, of course, nowhere near inside of the genre of survival horror. No, regardless of what they call it in the description, in the promo art, in the marketing, there is no survival horror found here. There is tension, but it comes in the way of action sequences and just overall gunplay, third-person gunplay, that thank god now allows me to be able to move while aiming, instead of having these locked down tank controls whenever I move around and I'm put in place like I was with either Leon in Resident Evil 4 or Chris in Resident Evil 5. That's nowhere to be found here, and so, so far, despite, despite my minor issues here and there where I would die frequently because I hit the button wrong during a very frivolous amount of quick time events. Or just simply because a character behaved, you know, weirdly and it got got me kind of frustrated. The only other thing that really, you know, got in my way was that I ran out of ammo. But there was never, like, a puzzle that stomped me. In fact, there's barely even any puzzles. And Jake Mueller's campaign, and I even had to turn to my chat on stream and ask them, is it just me or did Jake's campaign have more QuickTime events than even that of Ada's and they, they... They answered me, yeah, you're correct. There's actually more quick events in this guy's story. And that took up quite a bit of time for that campaign. That, again, it allowed me to kind of breeze on through. There were barely any moments that stumped me. I was, as the kids say, cracked. And, you know, at the end of the day, I did have fun. It's just not Resident Evil in any sense of the word. And it's most definitely not survival horror. And it still had its guilty pleasure moments that as badly written as they are, they're at least brought to life in a very tongue-in-cheek fashion that it's compelling enough to get me to listen to and watch, thanks to, again, some of the action-y stuff, John Woo-style kind of things that are happening, and also Troy Baker's you know charming performance. Jumping off stream, I played Halo 5 over the weekend, quite literally over the weekend, I think I started on either Thursday or Friday, and then I wrapped up by Sunday afternoon, And it wasn't because I was playing it nonstop. In fact, I think either Friday or Saturday, at least one of those two days, I didn't play at all because I was either busy, really busy. Actually, Saturday, I think there was a cookout I had to go to, so there was that. So overall, I feel like, what was it, maybe about six or seven hours to really beat the campaign because, trust me. I played, I think, either Thursday or Friday for only about two and a half hours, and I was already a third of the way done with that campaign. So make no mistake, Halo 5's campaign is short just like everybody else said that it is. But is it good? Because sometimes campaigns for shooters, especially with a very big franchise like Halo, they can still be done well if the action is there, if the combat feels satisfying, the set pieces are, are cool, and the environments look beautiful. And for the most part, on a technical level, I feel like Halo 5 actually does nail those things. In fact, Halo 5, and I posted a, a, a tweet about this on my on my profile on twitter.com, at DarkSpiderDavid, if you guys want to follow me. I actually mentioned how it's th- interesting to think that recently it's almost like the fifth game out of, All these popular franchises like Halo or Resident Evil end up being a good game within the genre that they're in, but not a great. But not even they're a great game for the genre that they're they're in, but not a good game for the franchise that they're a part of. And that's no. It's almost a similar thing with Halo, where Halo Five, where Halo Five Guardians specifically, where it's like it's a really good shooter shooter game, first-person shooter game. But I know as much of a fan... As much of a more of a fan as other people are... Because I'm not... I wasn't there day one with Halo. You know, when Halo came out... I was still all about that GameCube life for the longest time. I was all about Mario, Legend of Zelda, Smash Brothers, etc. And it wasn't until the mid-2000s when they had the Wii. And Nintendo kind of lost me with the Wii. But I felt back more so on PlayStation than I had ever done with Xbox. I was just strayed away completely from Xbox. And as much as I wanted to play with Halo... The my my excuse almost every single time was like, I want to play Halo, but it's stuck on that Xbox. I don't want the Xbox. And now, of course, being much more open with my gaming palette, I found, you know, I found a solution to that. So, having not been there since day one for Halo, even then, I could still recognize that Halo 5 does deviate quite a lot from the usual staple mechanics and the overall feel of the prior Halo games, whether it be the mainline games, Halo 1 through 4, or at this point, Reach or ODST. And so, I, I picked up on that. I mean, one of the more... And it's sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worst. For the better, in my opinion, that I know is probably going to dwell among the minority, is going to be that I personally like that the left trigger is is to aim down sights as opposed to using a secondary weapon or dual wielding a weapon, like before, or using it for grenades. I like that it was remapped to to kind of fit more of a traditional shooting style than it was the original Halo template and incorporating crouching and sprinting and the, the and especially sprinting. I, I'm sorry, I know that it's making it seem like it, most other shooters, but it just fit. A little bit better with how my brain operates when it comes to shooters period and because of that there were so many moments where I just felt like a badass either as chief or as log going around wiping out enemies or waves of enemies and you know thinking like so many moments I had those very goaded you know very uh, uh cracked moments going through uh, killing what should have been really tough enemies or tough waves of en- assortment of enemies and thinking to myself like yeah I'm pretty proud of myself right now because I was able to come up with a strategy using these uh, techniques that I'm accustomed to. And it, it, going, you know, thinking back to, a f- I want to say either last year or the year before when I did play the original Halo, it was the anniversary edition, but the original Halo and Halo 2 for the very first time, thanks to the Master Chief Collection. Just thinking to myself, like, yeah, these are good games and I recognize them as good games, but some of these mechanics just don't click with me. And Halo 5, unfortunately, did more so on that mechanic and combat area than the prior ones did. Now, the area that I know for a fact is flawed as fuck is the storytelling. I can easily see how people got pissed off when this game came out because it was marketed as this big climactic battle between Spartan Locke and uh, Master Chief. And let's just say that do not... And I repeat, do not pay attention to said marketing because you are going to be let down like a motherfucker. Like a motherfucker because there's barely any of that going on. In fact, the story meanders in more ways than one to where I'm like, all right, not only are we doing something, you know what this felt like in terms of story. Because the characters are cool and badass, and I love that they were able to bring in characters from other existing uh, Halo properties, most notably ODST. Nathan Fillion's character returns here, and that was dope to see, especially him being voiced by him again. And he's always, you know, charming. He's always cool. And it, that aspect of the game was fine, but when it came to story, it reminded me of that of of, of a filler episode from a good TV show. Like it's a good TV show. But ever so often comes that episode where the characters get stranded, like, on a planet or whatever. Actually, just recently, I've been catching up on Mandalorian. And as much as people love that show, and as much as I'm liking that show, it does have its share of filler episodes where characters get stranded on a planet, they have to help somebody on that planet, and then after they're done, they're like, well, time to go and, you know, move on. And I'm like, you know, there were some character beats here that were kind of cool, but... On the bigger picture side of things, if you think about it that way, nothing really happened in the story. You know, it was just an episode to kind of put in here. You know, The narrative really did not move forward. And Halo 5 really does feel like that a little bit. I mean, I know that 4 was meant to start a trilogy, but there's something about this entry that didn't feel like it was really continuing all that much from 4. Especially when you consider how much screen time Locke has versus Master Chief. It's like, ugh. This is a little bit criminal, to be honest. At this point, I wouldn't have even called it a Halo 5. It would have just been called Halo Guardians or Halo something, you know, like Halo Reach or Halo ODST, where you know that those games don't have Chief, but they do allude to the Chief, they do belong in that universe, in that corner of the story, but I know that they're not centered on Chief directly, so obviously they're not going to be titled numerically, but this one was, for some unbeknownst reason, and I do recognize the, the faults in that. So, similar to how I said that Resident Evil 5 was a really good action game, but a bad Resident Evil game. Halo Five Guardians is in fact, a really cool th- uh, first person shooter, but admittedly a very flawed and uh slightly lowlier halo game uh, as in respect to the prior in, in in respect to what the series has done up until this point so far, as far as telling Chief's story and establishing itself as its own personal shooter. ...than it was when but when this game came out where it started to borrow those those mechanics. I just know that I'm in the minority when I say that those mechanics were a little bit more favored by me because it's what I'm used to seeing in a game of this caliber, uh, you know, as a first person shooter. And then very, very lastly here, as far as what I've been playing, and I've only played it once, but frankly, I feel like that's all I need, and if anything, if I play it a second time, I'm probably going to be done with it, is a game that I'm planning on doing a video for, a game that I have not visited in literally, I think at this point, 15, maybe 20 years. But thanks to the um, very secretive and withdrawn, but still very powerful skill and uh, process of emulation I have actually done a little bit of dabbling into the Batman NES game the NES Batman game from 1989 that's based on the Tim Burton Batman movie of the same name I've been playing that and yeah I don't get me wrong it did put that smile on my face from way back when And there are certain little mechanics about it as an NES game that I can appreciate. And I'm trying not to really divulge too much because I want to save some of this material for the video, the YouTube exclusive video that I'm planning on making. But little touches, like being able to swap in between the weapons that you would expect Batman to have, like the Batarang, um, this like ninja throwing star kind of thing. And, admittingly, it is a little weird. Granted, this is Tim Burton's Batman, which was not afraid to kill, so it makes sense. But, this Batman actually has a gun. (laughs) He actually has a gun that you can swap to. So, the different weapon assortments that you can swap within an NES game alone, as well as the uh, wall-deflecting mechanic that I feel like it's the one thing that Batman had over fucking Mario at this point in time, you know, during the 80s. It's, you know, there's several little details like that, that I think this game needs to be given more credit for. With that said, there's, it has that usual NES flair that has never been uh, very faithful to the source material, you know, kind of going back to those original box arts where you would see the box art, but that shit would never go down in the game itself. And it would always be hilarious to kind of compare the two Batman is. It's funny because it's it, this time it's inverted. There's shit that happens in the game that's crazy, that you know for a fact is not gonna happen in the movie. In fact, I feel bad for any kids out there who might have played the game first and then watched the movie and then realized that there was no giant mech suit, you know, dude in a flying jetpack suit. At least not until Batman Returns. Uh, or you know these like horned things that have giant claws that tackle you that are a ginormous pain in the ass to, to get through, but hey... That's when emulation kicks in, and I thank God for save states. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. So, I'm still in the midst of playing that. I'm actually more than halfway through. That's another thing, too, is that we often forget how short these NES games really were. We only made them out to be long because of how frequently we would die. And on the NES, if you died, you have to start from the very beginning, so that would take up much more time. But thanks to the power of save, you know, with the, the little things in emulation. Um, Let's just say that I only played, I think I want to say for about an hour and 15 minutes. And we're about two thirds of the way done with the game. And I looked it up online and it is in fact about two, maybe two and a half hours long to to really beat this kind of game. So it's possible that maybe tonight, Friday night at the time of this recording, I'll jump back in, see if I can beat it. And hopefully we'll have material to start building on that YouTube video that will go up on my new channel. So hopefully we can get that done. (music) I mean, this is the one thing that I'll have to keep busy as far as, you know, gaming for content creation because it's not like I can play Deathloop right now. Which is another game that I would have been playing on stream after Resident Evil 6 and playing through Jake's campaign. Because Deathloop came out September 14th to glowing reviews that's got me stoked. Like, really, really... Good reviews. It was one thing for IGN to give it a 10 out of 10, because I know that sometimes IGN can lean a little too extreme to one camp or another, especially when it comes to Sony exclusives, as the past has shown. But it was once we got to GameSpot, and then VG247, and then a handful of other outlets, giving it perfect scores, or at least masterful scores, masterpiece scores, like 10 out of 10s, 5 out of 5s, essential ratings. Game of the Year discussions, if you will, that then I was like, oh, we might just be up to something here. And at this point, I had already pre-ordered the game. I pre-ordered the game, and I feel like this is, you know, very integral for this top for this topic for the story. I pre-ordered the game on the thirty-first because I wanted to take advantage of a ten percent off coupon at Best Buy <laughs> that was I got for my birthday. So I pre-ordered, and it was expiring on the 31st, so that's why I told myself, okay, let's pre-order on the 31st. So I had had this game already pre-ordered for two weeks. Monday night rolls around, and I start to notice that usually it's around this time, the night before a game or a movie comes out that I pre order that I get the email and the text saying it's ready for pickup, and nothing came through. And so therefore, I start to get a little worried. Tuesday rolls around, and still Nothing. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is going on? Why am I not getting the email or the text saying that my copy of Deathloop is ready? The day transpires. We get closer to about 6 o'clock, I want to say. And I finally get the email saying, your item's been delayed. How long? What was the reason? What's it going to take? No clue. Best Buy did not tell me anything. Any other details except to say that they're gonna try to get me my cut, co- excuse me, my copy of Deathloop to me in the next few days. Now, here's a little th- caveat that I need to throw in here. I did used to work for Best Buy, and this is where my concern then stems from: is that I used to work for Best Buy, and I know that when an item gets put on delay. You don't really know this, but a said date, and I don't know what the date is, uh, and you know that sometimes it varies depending on the item. But a said date is put forth by the system to then make it that date a deadline to then make this order happen. And if the order doesn't happen by that date, they'll cancel it. You do get your money back, sure, but you don't get your item. And if it was like a rare or hot to find item, then it's gone. And you either have to wait longer, or it's gone, and you're you're out of bust. You're you're screwed. Should out look? So long story short, that happened on Tuesday. I thought to myself, "All right, let's give it a, some time," because I wasn't really planning on streaming until Thursday anyway. And so Wednesday went by, and then Thursday went by, and I remember waking up Thursday thinking to myself, "If." we get to either 4, 4.30-ish you know, p.m., and there's still no update, then I'm not going to be able to stream it. I'll give it until today, but I'm not going to be able to stream it uh, today, Friday, at the time of this recording for this episode. Uh, but I won't be able to stream it. And up until this morning, there was no change. It still said it was delayed. There was still no improvement, which is weird because it shows that there's uh, uh, literally two... Copies left in stock at the store that I put it for pickup, but they're not fulfilling my order It's almost like it's in limbo state So then I did some reconnaissance if you will and I realized That there's actually a store a Best Buy store. That's about an hour away. Well, maybe a little less than an hour It's like 55 minutes or something Away that has a shit ton in stock. Actually, Uh, it's not even just a few it says fully in stock And so, I went ahead and changed the pickup uh, place, the pickup store, and it worked. Not only did it work, but I did not, I think a little bit before recording this podcast, I actually did get the email and the text saying, it's ready for pickup. So, after recording this podcast and getting it uploaded, I will try to make my way to that store, but... I mean, I really have no clue what the hell's going on. I don't know if it was either Sony not manufacturing enough discs because they probably thought, oh, not that many people own ps 5s You know, they're very hard to find. You know, let's cut costs and just make like 20 copies and send it to this store, 20 copies and send it to this store, and then they're gone. So I don't know how having had my copy pre-ordered for two weeks. Granted, it's not the longest amount of time, but it's not the shortest either. It wasn't, you know, last minute. You know, I I, I failed to see how two weeks is last minute. You know what I'm saying? August 31st. And yet, three day, almost three, yeah, practically three days later after release, it was still undelayed. And if I hadn't made that switch to this other store... it it, it would still have been in delayed status. And I know, again, having worked for Best Buy, that's not a good sign. Because if they couldn't get it by a certain amount of time, which, who knows, it might have been even tomorrow or Sunday, they would have canceled my order and I would have been fucked. And the reason why I would have been fucked is because I used that 10% coupon for my birthday. And like I said before, if I get my order canceled, yeah, I get my money back. But that 10% coupon is gone. I don't get that coupon back. It was, you know, set to expire on the 31st. That thing disintegrates, dissolves, reduced to atoms. And I that, along with the free steelbook that Best Buy is throwing in, I wanted to make sure that I had all that still in tow. And thankfully, it looks like maybe I might st- still be able to make that happen. I just need to drive a little farther to then pick up my order. But I'm free for the day. I'm probably going to have to cancel stream tonight, which you know was a maybe, maybe not thing already anyways, and I could use the break so then edit more content. But to retailers, I know that we still have the pandemic and logistics can still kind of flex both for good or for bad from time to time. I mean, <clears throat> some things might get delayed like my copy of Deathloop or some things might arrive early like my mom's treadmill recently. But just make communication key. I feel like I would have understood a little bit better if at least I was told either the specific date or the logistics or maybe some form of tracking number as to see where my copy of Deathloop was at. Because I was so much in the dark, I needed to change that store. So that's the explanation as to why I have been able to play Deathloop despite you know it being one of my uh, most anticipated games of the year and why I have been able to stream it. But hopefully I'll be able to change that tonight get the game but to be honest because of where the store is located at there's a possibility that there might be a really strong influx of traffic on the way back and because of that i feel the need to cancel the stream and tell people hey i won't be able to stream today but the good news is that i was able to pick up a copy of Deathloop. switch stores still get it for the discounted price and get the book, and i'll be able to stream it tomorrow so hopefully i can make that happen And we won't be expecting any further delay of me playing Deathloop. Sadly, I cannot say the same thing about two other games that have been delayed, (laughs) one of which unfortunately was a game I was excited for, so I'm just going to have to wait a little longer, but at least it made a decision a little bit more clear and less stressful. So the game that I didn't really give a shit about, regardless of when it was coming out, even got a delay that it's not even that bad. Uh, In hindsight, at least. And that is Battlefield 2042. So, as for mention, when I was giving my tribute to Michael K. Williams, uh, who appears in Battlefield 4, he is going to be reprising his role as Irish in Battlefield 2042 to some capacity because this is, as I need to mention quite frequently so that people get the point, a multiplayer-only game for $70. And despite this, it still got delayed, but only by a month. And this is where a strange Mandela effect kind of thing kicks in. Because for some weird reason, I was under the impression that this game was already coming out in November. I don't know why. Maybe I was correlating it with Call of Duty Vanguard. I, I, I don't know. I just Something in my brain just said that those two games were ideally coming out around the same time. And now it looks like they will have to. Because the original uh, release date for Battlefield 2042 was October 22nd. And now it's been delayed to November 19th. Uh, 2021. So uh, just a little shy of a month for some extra polish, extra working time, and I still don't give a shit. <laughs> Cause uh, that game, like I said, I was already under the impression it was coming out in November. I was lumping COD and Battlefield here in the same sphere, and now it looks like that really is coming to pass. And I still feel the same way that I did before, which is that I don't care. I, I just, I legitimately do not care. There's not much more that I can really extrapolate from this delay in the story. Now, what I do care about is Dying Light 2, which got a rather hefty delay. And this was an interesting thing that, again, made a decision very clear, because for the past week or so ago, not very frequently, but from time to time, I was thinking to myself, Dying Light 2 and Halo Infinite come out one... we're, were coming out at least a day apart from each other. Skylight 2 on December 7th and Halo Infinite on December 8th. And as a streamer, this kind of made me wonder like which game is you know should I stream or would I be able to stream? Because my buddy Surface Assassin, who's also a streamer, his community and ours kind of share very similar viewers as far as who, you know, views what. And we don't want to present too much redundant what you know trickle down content for other of the viewers like we don't want us to be streaming the same game so that when the streamers see us both live or you know from day to day one's live over the other but we're streaming the same game, it's going to feel like deja vu for them, it's going to feel very repetitive for them. And we didn't want to invoke that too much, and I wanted to have a discussion with him as to who was going to stream who. Was I going to stream Dying Light, Dying Light 2 and him Halo Infinite because he's a bigger Halo fan, or vice versa because I know like, he was very passionate about Dying Light 2, so much so that when I told him about the delay, he legitimately got kind of upset. <laughs> So now that discussion doesn't really need to happen all that much because Dying Light 2 has been delayed, delayed from December 7th to... God damn it. Hold on. Let me look it up. I know it was February. February 4th, 2022. Just a, fe- a mere two weeks before another game that got delayed from this year that I'm looking forward to. Horizon 2 Forbidden West. So... That's an awful lot of open world to take up the shortest month of the year. there <laughs> is so much open world, so little time. But, yeah, that's the delay. So we got a couple of months to an additional to look forward to Dying Light 2. But on the bright side, at least out of the two games that were competing this week, the one that got delayed is the one that I would have to pay for. And right now, during my current unemployment state that at least kind of offers a little bit of relief knowing that the free game is still on track for December 8th. It's just a shame that the game that is on track for December 8th is the game that we all do want to see get delayed because upon release we're only virtually getting half of the game, which is Halo Infinite after recent uh, news and you know releases and comment uh, commentaries upon the fact that the game is releasing with the single player campaign and multiplayer only no co-op and no forge and for mainstay halo fans this was a pretty big deal and it's funny because the first thing that I thought of myself after the the recent news about Dying Light 2 getting delayed was that, well, now me and Surface don't really have to decide on which game, who was going to stream which game. We can both do a co-op stream of Halo Infinite, and then it finally dawned on me, oh yeah, there's no co-op for Halo Infinite. It's not coming out with it. It's still going to be a single-player-only experience. What the hell? like It still kind of brings up the point that Despite this being a free game for us, because we do have Game Pass, we still want this thing to be delayed because we genuinely care about the next Halo installment, more so him than me. And because of that, despite getting it for free we still want a delay so that a we have time to catch up on some games specifically me as a streamer but also because that product will then be complete we will get single player we'll campaign we'll get campaign with co-op we'll get forge we'll get multiplayer everything and if you want to get it get even into a deeper perspective go down some layers we're actually getting a quarter of a game because think about the fact that multiplayer is free to play, meaning people who don't even own Game Pass or own a copy of the game, they could still play the Halo Infinite multiplayer. So, what are we really getting? Campaign, single-player campaign, which don't get me wrong, that's what I'm always looking after for these first-person shooters, whether it be Halo, Battlefield, Call of Duty. But now it's like that. That's all. That's that's all they've been working on after the one-year delay. Something is up, and I just can't bring myself to be at the level of even minor excitement for Halo Infinite. I'm looking forward to it, but not without very, very, very heavy reservations. And, And that said, that all these games that we never thought would get delayed, whether we're indifferent to them, like with 2042, or we generally got disappointed in hearing their delay... Like Dying Light like 2 because that was something kind of genuine and uh, a very different, well I don't want to say a different experience because it's still technically technically a sequel. But it's a sequel for a game that's been a really good minute since we last seen of from its original uh, property and it's only the second installment. You know, it's not the sixth like Infinite. So it's crazy. It's crazy. And I knew that all these delays were going to happen to an extent because of COVID, because of the pandemic. As I mentioned on YouTube videos and on streams, these uh, delays are going to happen more frequently because it wasn't 2020 that was going to get affected it was going to be 2021 and probably a portion here of 2022 that's going to to get thoroughly affected by the pandemic because it was last year that they were working on these games that they then had to create these protocols to keep people safe this is where we're going to get recompense this is where or repentance as gamers I, i should say this is where it's we're going to start to feel that drought so if you, had a, if you have a backlog like I do, better start organizing that backlog and strategizing which games to play. Because all these games that you're getting stoked for, don't be surprised if you're either going to have to wait until the end of 2022 or probably even 2023 to actually see them in your console. Which is why I honestly feel pretty confident in Spider-Man 2 with that 2023 release date. Because I'm like, you know what? I'm fine with it. And it's because of this backlog and my strategy with the backlog, both on and off stream, that makes me you know confident with how I can kind of strategize the rest of my year as far as gaming. So that kind of leaves the question where are we at with two big delays for games that I wasn't expecting to get delayed but did, and then the one game that I want to see get delayed still kind of there like a pimple, Halo Infinite. So Let's say that Halo Infinite is still on track for December. Quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, that's literally the only other game that I'm excited for in the latter months that are not October. So after October, with the exception of Halo Infinite, there's really not much more that I'm stoked for. November's completely vacant for me, and then December was Dying Light 2 and Halo Infinite, but now it's just Halo Infinite. So let's say in a perfect world, Halo Infinite does get delayed so that they can throw in co-op, and Forge. That will then make November and December completely vacant for me to play catch-up on as far as my backlog for streaming and my backlog for gaming and to catch up on the releases that have been you know, going on this year that I either have not had time for or I don't have the finances for, and hopefully if I do pick up a job in the next couple, uh, in the next few weeks, I'll be able to then pick up those games and play them, such as Scarlet Nexus, Tales of Arise. I'm really stoked for Tales of Arise. It's getting a lot of great reviews, and it just recently came out. So I definitely want to get back into that series. Tales of Arise, Life is Strange, True Colors, Kena, Birds of Spirits comes out probably in the next few days at the time of this recording of this uh, podcast episode going up. And then other titles I have released in the year thus far that are actually part of Game Pass as well, such as Outriders. There's a game coming out in October called Into the Pit that I'm looking forward to. And uh, Psychonauts 2, but I have yet to play the original Psychonauts 4. So, so much that I can then you know jam into that month of November and the good portion of December, considering that Halo Infinite does in fact come out. And then we got some other titles releasing in October, like uh, Far Cry 6, Guardians of the Galaxy. Although these two titles, I will definitely wait for the reviews to see what they say, and if they're glowing enough, maybe I'll pick them up. And if they're kind of in the midway point, then maybe if there's some form of sale, though they're coming out very late in the fall season, that I fear that there may not be a sale, and I'm just gonna have to be very pick and choosy with my with my money here. Uh, as far as day one releases, Deathloop really is it until we were gonna get into November, but now it's like. Uh, I don't know. It, it looks like it could be a bit of a crapshoot as far as why I decide to pick up and play. Or I could just go back to the backlog that has been building for the PlayStation 4 slash PS5, Xbox, Switch, and going back to my handhelds and just, you know, strategize in that manner. I don't know. A lot to think about. A lot to kind of divulge and digest. And I'll go ahead and leave you guys with that. So thank you guys so much for watching. episode. I know a little bit of a shorter episode... Not a whole lot in the way of news, I know a lot of people have speculations as to what's going on with No Way Home, with Spider-Man, with a lot of other things, you know, casting rumors and things like that, all in good time for episode 4, because I know we got the Tom Hardy hat, (laughs) we got that Tom Hardy hat and all that stuff, but honestly... It's a lot to take in, a lot to kind of break down. uh, And this is what I had set up for this video game-centric podcast. But who knows? Maybe in Episode 4, I'll go back to some of the things uh, said and heard within the uh, film side of the universe that I like to kind of divulge into, whether it be Denis Villeneuve's comments or, again, the stuff that's going down with Venom and his possible incorporation into the MCU I don't know, I'm legitimately a little bit fatigued with these whole, you know, different takes and speculations of the Marvel Universe that it's like, let's just leave these things to come out, and then we'll talk about them, I don't know, Uh, but I'm legitimately getting to the point of fatigueness, and I also, like I said, want to not catch the bulkhead of traffic here to hopefully pick up my copy of Deathloop, so... With that said, thank you guys for so much for listening to Episode 3 of the Dark Spidercast. Make sure to hit the follow button or subscribe button or watch button or listen button, whatever the case may be, on your favorite platform of choice to catch your guys' favorite podcasts, whether it be on Spotify, Google Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, etc., etc. Make sure to hit the follow button or the like button or whatever it, it ends up may being. As well as check out the links in the description so you guys can stay in touch with me on other platforms such as my personal website, darkspiderdavid.com and, of course, my social media handles like Twitter, Instagram, at darkspiderdavid, as well as my YouTube and Twitch channels, youtube.com and twitch.tv slash dark spider david if you guys want to catch some of the video content as well as the live stream content for gaming and just chatting streams galore in the meantime guys stay safe stay humble and i'll see you guys or uh, play to you guys (laughs) next week take care